And so I'm going to read from verse 1. John chapter 6, page 1069. Uh, reading from verse 1 of chapter 6, just under the heading, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Bit of a spoiler there, sorry. Um, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish uh, Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half, half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his, of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let me pray for us and then we'll get stuck into that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you miraculously fed those thousands of people. Um, and I pray that as we uh, look at your word now, that you would, you would feed us that we would leave here full um, and satisfied as you work amongst us. Amen. Can you think of a time when you've done the right thing for the wrong reasons? Let me give you an example. It's like when a kid uh, does their homework, but not because they're kind of valuing and making the most of their education, but just to get their parents off their back who are nagging them to get the homework done. It's the right thing but for the wrong reason. Can you think of a time when you've done that? Why don't we just chat in small groups, turn to the tables around you, the people around you, have a think about that question. Think of a time when you've done the right thing for the wrong reason. Turn into your groups now and I'll get some of you a feedback in a couple of minutes. Okay, so we're looking at another of Jesus' miracles in John's Gospel. Um, and this is very much a case of people doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Here we see people coming to Jesus, seeking him out, finding him, but doing it for the wrong reasons. And we're going to think about this miracle under three he uh, headings. We're going to think about what the people want, what the people get, and what the people need. So let's start with the first of these, what the people want. Now the miracle that we're looking at today is probably one of the most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. The gospel writers clearly saw it as significant. It features in all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle to do so other than the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's Jesus's most public miracle. Um, and it takes place probably at the peak of Jesus's popularity during his ministry when he was uh, physically present on earth. So it's a big one. And on the, on the face of it, it's, it's pretty straightforward. There's a hungry crowd with no food, and so Jesus feeds them. But when you look under the surface, there's a, a little bit more than that going on. 
So remember the story. News has been spreading about Jesus. He's been doing extraordinary things, healing people who have been sick all their lives, curing diseases that, that no doctor has been able to even touch. He's turned water to wine in an instant. He's, brought, he's brought people back from the brink of death. And so understandably, people wanted a piece of the action. Specifically mentioned in verse 2 of our chapter is that people are coming to him because they've seen him heal people who are ill. And so in chapter 6, we get a great crowd of people coming to Jesus. Now initially, Jesus seems to be trying to kind of get away from the crowd to to spend some time with his disciples. He, He crosses to the other side of the lake, but the crowd walks around to get to him. So he retreats up the hill with his disciples, but the crowd is persistent. They keep coming towards Jesus. They keep trying to get to him. And and by this point, Jesus knows that the people have traveled far and that they're in the middle of nowhere. There's around 5,000 men, not to mention the women and the children. So probably we're looking at a crowd of kind of 15, 20,000 people. Even Tesco Extra couldn't cope with that many people needing food at once, and there definitely wasn't a Tesco Extra around there. And so, um, what do the people want in this situation? That's our first point. What do the people want? So far, we've seen two possible things that they want. They're coming to Jesus because they've seen that he he can heal ill people. We saw that in verse two. Maybe that's what they want from him. They want healing. Or we could be more basic still. They're coming to Jesus because they're hungry. After all, that is what Jesus does, isn't it? He does feed those people. So what do the people want from Jesus? Do they want healing? Do they want feeding? Well, actually, I think there's something deeper going on here. And John lays some uh, pretty big clues in his account to what that is. Clue number one is in verse four. Let me read that again. It says this. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, that's not just a kind of incidental detail from John. He just throws it in there, a kind of time stamp or something, so he grounds the action of what's going on. Why is John telling us that this is taking place around the time of the Passover? Well, what was the Passover? Every year, the Jews would come from far and wide. They would travel for miles to get to Jerusalem in order to remember the most significant event in their history, the Passover. You might remember the story if you've ever seen the film, The Prince of Egypt. Around 1,300 years before Jesus was on earth, the Jewish people had been slaves in Egypt. They were treated horribly, and so they cried out to God for help. And God sent a rescuer for them, (coughs) Moses. Through Moses, God sent a series of, of plagues trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. But after nine increasingly severe plagues, Pharaoh was being stubborn. And so eventually God sent the final worst plague, the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But God spared the the firstborn sons of his people when they painted over their door frames with the blood of a lamb. Those houses would be passed over. Death would not come to them. That's the Passover. And that was the decisive event. Pharaoh relented. In one of the greatest acts of rescue in history, 
Moses led the people out of Egypt to settle in a land of their own, forming a nation, forming their own identity. So that's Passover. And, and so now we're at the time of Passover. The people are coming together to remember that great rescue of God's people from their cruel oppressor. Now just think for a moment how people were, were feeling around that time. What kind of feeling was in the air? I'd imagine uh, the buzz in the air would have been similar to the feeling in America on the 4th of July, Independence Day, a time of, of patriotism, a sense of national identity. That's when they were rescued. That's when they came into their land. That's when they were formed into a nation. That would be the buzz in the air, except for one problem. Because Passover would also painfully remind them that things aren't as they should be. You see, their land is now occupied territory. They're still living there, that, that land that they came to when they left Egypt. They're still in that land, but they are under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And when we see that, we see what the people really want. What they want really isn't simply healing or feeding. What they really want is another Moses, another rescuer to, get, to, to overthrow the Romans and get them their land and their national pride back. You see that not only from that clue in verse 4, you see it um, in verse 14 as well. So after Jesus performed the miracle, just look at what they say in verse 14. They say... After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now to understand what they're saying there, because it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? I need to just take you back again. Turn back in the Bible with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's on page 196, if you want to find that. Keep your finger in John. You might have missed that boat already, but if you haven't, keep your finger in John. So Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. That was Moses speaking. And do you see what he's promising? He's promising God's people that one day another prophet will come like him. Another Moses. For centuries, God's people have been waiting for him to fulfill this promise. And now, under the rule of the Romans, they're desperate for the fulfillment to come. And then along comes Jesus. He starts doing all this miraculous stuff, healings, turning water into wine. And it's Passover, and they're remembering when Moses led them to rescue them from Egypt. They're looking around, it's Passover, they feel patriotic but they're also seeing the Roman soldiers and they put two and two together. Could this be the promised prophet? Could Jesus be the new rescuer, the one who will restore our land to us, the one who will overthrow the mighty Romans just like Moses did with the Egyptians? Now, unfortunately, as we'll see in a minute, they put two and two together and they make five. But this is why they're coming to Jesus. 
This is what the people want from Jesus, a political leader to rescue them from occupation by the vast Roman Empire. They see Jesus feed the crowd. They see that amazing miracle and they take it as confirmation. But Jesus knows their hearts. Let's look at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That's what the people want. But before we move on um, to what they get, let's just pause for a moment. Just think about your story. Many of this crowd are coming coming towards Jesus for the first time, and they come with a particular want. What was that for you? Think about when you first came towards Jesus. It might be that this is the first time you've been to Grace Church, and, and this is the first time you've come towards him. Or, or maybe there was a moment in your life when something clicked inside you. A moment when you thought, I'm going to look into Christianity. I'm going to find out about Jesus. I'm going to start going to church, or I'm going to ask my Christian friend about, about what they believe. Why was that? Why did you start coming towards Jesus? What did you want from him? Let's bring it up to date a little bit. What is it that you want from Jesus now? Perhaps you're single, and what you want is for him to provide you with a partner. Or you want Jesus himself to be a close companion who can be with you in your loneliness. Perhaps you're in a difficult marriage and you want Jesus to resolve that situation somehow. Maybe it's your kids. You're worried about them. You're you're worried about the choices they're making. You're worried about their situation at school. You're worried about their mental health or, or another health problem they're facing. What you want from Jesus is for him to make things okay for your kids. There could be all sorts of answers. What you want is for him to sort out your financial problems, for him to help you deal with your addiction, for him to give you a community to be part of, for him to make your workplace more bearable. Many of these things are things that Jesus wants you to bring to him. To want these things from Jesus isn't wrong, just like it wasn't wrong for the Israelites to want Jesus to, um, for, for, for want, to want Roman occupation to end. But that can't be all that we're about, as we'll soon see. So, we've thought about what the people want. Let's think about what the people get. Let's dive back into the story. Remember, the crowds have followed Jesus around the lake and then up the hill, wanting to see if he was the promised prophet. But they're also hungry. And so there's a bit of a dilemma. Jesus says to to Philip, one of his disciples, where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? Now Jesus already knows what he's going to do in this situation. You see that in verse uh, 6 where we're told he was just trying to test Philip. Philip had spent a lot of time with Jesus. He'd uh, seen his miracles. He'd heard his teaching. But it still hasn't really clicked for him. And so when Jesus says, what are we going to do? 
Philip does a bit of maths and he says, we'd need more than half a year's wages to give everyone even just a bite to eat. You see, he's still thinking in natural terms. Despite everything he's seen Jesus do, he still doesn't expect that Jesus could do something supernatural in this situation. And, and just as an aside, how often do we approach the challenges that we face in life in exactly the same way? And then another one of the disciples pipes up, Andrew. Now, some of the more kind of earnest um, commentaries say that Andrew here is a model of faith. But I actually think Andrew's been a bit of a joker here. <laughs> he sees a boy with five little loaves of bread and two little fishes, and he says to Jesus, we could share this around. <laughs> how, how far do you think this would go? But Jesus runs with his idea. He takes the bread and the fish, he breaks them up, and he gets the disciples to dish it out to the crowds that are there. And astonishingly, everyone, all 15 to 20,000 people, eat as much as they want. And even with that, there's food left over, 12 baskets full. How on earth did Jesus do that? Now, some people uh, try to explain this miracle away. They say something like, well, the people saw their little boy being generous with his five loaves and his two fishes, and, and they were all moved by his generosity to themselves be generous, and they kind of opened their cloak and got the sandwich out, and they shared it around, and everyone had enough to eat. Happy days. Now, th that might sound more logical than um, feeding all those people with so little food, but it's only logical... It's only more logical if you are working with the assumption that Jesus is just like any other person. But that's not John's claim in this gospel. John starts his gospel with the claim that Jesus is the one who was present and active at the creation of the world. Jesus is the one who, with a word, created the entire universe out of nothing. And if that's true, then it's perfectly logical that Jesus could feed all of these people very easily. In this miracle, we see Jesus' creative power and might. We see him acting with compassion to feed these people in front of him who are hungry. And that's all great, <laughs> but that's not actually what these people wanted, remember. What the people wanted was confirmation that Jesus is the long-awaited prophet. And interestingly, as far as they're concerned, this miracle does give them that confirmation. They think that this miracle shows them who they think he is and that he'll do for them what, he wants, what they want him to do. Once he's done the miracle they start talking about the prophet and Jesus knows they're going to try and make him king they see it as a confirmation so what is it about this miracle that confirms that with them that convinces them that he is the prophet promised back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 what is it about it and let me tell you about another time in Israel's history when the people had just been rescued from Egypt and they found themselves in the wilderness there was hundreds of thousands of them then, and they had no food. And here's what happened. Moses approached God with the people's predicament, and God responded by miraculously providing bread from heaven called manna. 
The people were miraculously fed and they were no longer hungry. Sound familiar? Here in John 6, people see that link. They thought, well, the last time God provided so much food miraculously was under Moses. And so they joined the dots. So here's the new Moses, the prophet that we've been waiting for. And let me tell you, so far they've got it right. They've, they've made the right connections. Jesus was, through this miracle, claiming to be the prophet that they were waiting for. But here's what they expected next. They expected that he would announce himself as king and lead an uprising against, against Rome. And that's where they went wrong. That's where they put two and two together and made five. What the people wanted and what the people got were two very different things. What the people wanted was a, a prophet who would be a new political leader. What they got was a full belly and then a Jesus who disappeared before them, before they could make him king. Just look again at how the chapter ends. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. That was verse 15. The Romans are very much still in charge, and Jesus has left the building, it seems. And let's be honest for a moment. What we want from Jesus and what we get are sometimes two very different things. We want him to provide us a church community that will be there for us, that will help us battle our loneliness, that will support us through the hard things in life, a church community that we can trust, but sometimes we're let down. We still feel lonely, people betray our trust. We want Jesus to make life go swimmingly for our kids, for, for school to be a breeze, for friendships to be strong, for their health to be good, but what we get is sleepless nights and uncertainty and worry. We want him to use the power that we know that he has to solve our problems, ease our burdens, relieve our pressures, but sometimes instead, following Jesus makes life harder, not easier. Now when faced with that, there are, there are multiple things that we need to think about and, and we haven't got time for all of them today. Part of the answer is that ultimately, Jesus will remove all suffering and pain and sadness when he brings in the new creation. The answer to our good longings may just be not yet. Until then, we have to face the consequences of living in a world marked by uh, brokenness and sin. But another part of the answer is that Jesus may not give us what we want, because he knows what we need. And that takes us to our final point this afternoon. We've seen uh, what the people want. We've seen what the people get. Now let's look at what the people need. We've talked um, a few times across this series on miracles about how uh, the miracles act, act as signs. And that is true of the feeding of the 5,000 too. What you see in this miracle isn't simply Jesus responding to a crowd of people who are hungry by feeding them. It is that, of course. When Jesus heals, it's because he has compassion on the sick person. When he feeds people, it's because he doesn't want to see them hungry. But it's more than that too. The miracle also acts as a signpost. 
Now, when you're on a journey to somewhere, you follow the signposts to get to where you're going. Sometimes with, people, with uh, Jesus, people get distracted by the signpost itself. We get obsessed with the miracle rather than what it's pointing to. It's like going on a walk to some amazing walk, waterfall and seeing the sign for the waterfall and stopping there and just looking at the sign rather than following the sign and going to the thing that it's pointing to. But that's not quite the problem here in John 6. It's more like this. It's more like the crowd has understood that the miracle is a sign. And they've started to follow the signpost to where it's heading, but at some point they've taken a wrong turn and they've ended up at the wrong place. Now, I'm stretching the analogy a little bit there, but I think you get it. Um, the people wanted the miracle to prove that Jesus was the promised prophet and they wanted that prophet to be a political leader who would overthrow Rome. They wanted him to rescue them from their occupiers. Jesus does the miracle. It does confirm that he is the prophet that they've been longing for. And he too agrees that they need him to be like Moses, the new Moses, to rescue them. But he has a much bigger rescue in mind. What the people wanted was a political rescue. But what the people needed was a spiritual rescue. They had a deeper problem than simply occupation from the Romans, and that's what Jesus came to deal with. Later on in chapter six, Jesus makes this really clear as he explains what this miracle is all about. Now, we haven't got time to look at all of that. There's some tricky stuff to handle in there, but let me just read a few of those verses, and you might wanna look with me. Look with me from verse 32 of chapter six of, of John. From verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks, at the, looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. And then just go down to verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So do you see what he's saying there? They need rescuing from something much bigger than simply occupation by the Romans. There is a, a deeper issue. Something much worse than the Romans that they need rescued from. Just like at that first Passover, they need rescued from death. All of them were facing death, not just a physical death, but spiritual death too. The Jewish people knew this. 
They'd known it since the fall. Since sin entered the world, since then humanity has faced a huge problem. They'd rejected God, they'd failed to live up to his perfect law, they were deserving of judgment. In doing so, they, we, had cut ourselves off from the source of life. The same is true of us. What the people need and what we need is rescue. Moses rescued the people from the mighty Egyptian empire. We need a prophet like Moses who will bring our rescue from an even bigger foe, from sin and from its ultimate consequence, death. And that's what Jesus did. We deserve nothing from Jesus. We have no right to this rescue. And yet he came. He came to be the bread of life who, when we feed on him, that means when we believe in him and in what he's done for us, we are filled with life for eternity instead of death. Jesus came to to bring about the greater Passover. He would be the lamb who died for us so that when we respond in faith, when we trust in his death in our place, then we won't die just like those firstborn sons were saved from the Passover. Jesus wouldn't give the people what they wanted in John 6. He wouldn't allow them to make him king so that he could overthrow the Romans. That's not because he couldn't have done it. Of course he could have done it. But it's because he knew that the people needed something far more important than what they wanted. They needed a different kind of rescue. They needed him to be the king they needed the king who would die in their place, take the death they deserved and rescue them from spiritual death. A death on a Roman cross for Jesus would look far less impressive than leading his people in battle and victory against the Romans. But actually, ultimately, it would mean that they could live in a kingdom free from any oppressor ever again in the new creation. So think about your life for a moment. What is it that you want from Jesus? I want you to hear this today. Sometimes he will graciously give you those things in this life. Just like he he met the crowd's physical hunger. But you can be certain of this. Where the things that you want are good, they will be yours forever in the new creation. But only if you come to him for what you need, forgiveness and life. And that's true because Jesus has given you what you really need. He's given himself on the cross to deal with your problem and my problem of sin and death. Just bring to mind for a moment those things um, in your life that um, are hard. Those wants you have of Jesus. Bring those to mind. Let me urge you, keep bringing those things to Jesus. He wants you to. And sometimes he'll answer your prayers in the ways that you want him to. 
But as you face those hard things, know this. Jesus knows what you want. But more importantly, he knows what you need. And he's already sealed the deal. He's won your rescue through his death. If you put your trust in him, he'll keep you until the new creation where all of your wants, all of the desires of your heart that are good will be perfectly fulfilled. We thought earlier about uh, times that we've done the right things for the wrong reasons. It may well be that over the course of this talk, you've realized that you've been doing the right thing. You've been coming to Jesus, but you've been doing it for the wrong reasons. You've simply wanted what he can give you. You've wanted community or a sense of the spiritual or answers to your problems in life. Well, why not today come to Jesus again? Maybe for the first time, for the thing that you need. Confess your sin to him. Recognize before him that you are deserving of death. And that's a far bigger problem than any other in your life. And trust him. Trust that he can be the greater Moses who can rescue you from your greatest foe. Rejoice in that. And as you do, trust that your wants, whether they're dealt with now or in the new creation, trust that they are safe in his hands too. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were that promised prophet who came to your people to lead a, a greater rescue than we can possibly imagine, that, that cost you that more than uh, we can even begin to imagine. We're sorry, Lord Jesus, that we, that we do sin, that we turn our back on you, that we ignore you, that we live as though you're not there. We know that that deserves death that we deserve to be cut off from you after rejecting you so much and for so long. We know we deserve nothing from you, and yet you came and you led, us, led that great rescue by dying on the cross. Thank you that in that fragile, weak moment, you were doing the strongest thing that we can imagine. You were taking our sin, taking our death, so that we don't have to. Please help us, Jesus, to, to look to that and to trust that and to believe that. And so when we look at the things in our life that aren't right, the things that are hard, the things that we want from you, help us to trust that because you've met our need, you will one day meet those wants as well.